Well, good morning and glory, glory to our risen Savior. This morning, before we get to our scripture, um, we lost a dear sister this week and uh, want to, on behalf of myself and my family and our church family to extend condolences to Jan Kirkling's family, to Paul and the kids and Alan and Pam and Laura and Christopher and their children and know that we know that we love you. But we, though we grieve because we have said goodbye this week to a sister, I cannot help but to be a little jealous of her (laughs) this morning as she experiences the promises that we talk about today in the reality of the presence of her Lord and Savior. That is worthy of our praise and of our rejoicing and of our consideration this morning. I would ask that you turn to Romans chapter 10 this morning. Uh, This may not be what you would call a prototypical passage for Easter, but after all, why do we celebrate Easter? We celebrate Easter because it is a remembrance of that day when Jesus Christ rose from the grave and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. It is a day that we celebrate the coming of salvation to those of us, which is all of us, who are sinners before a holy God and in need of grace. We celebrate the gospel. And I cannot think of maybe a better passage to talk about the gospel than Romans chapter 10. As Paul lays out for us in very clear distinction how we receive the gospel, how we receive salvation into our lives to know the power of the resurrection and how we do not. And so if you would, if you're a guest with us, it is typically our custom to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you would do that with us, we are going to read all of chapter 10. So if in the middle of that, your legs need a rest, feel free uh, to have a seat. But we are going to, to look at this passage together and to honor it together. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire And my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For the heart, with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous with those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And we have much to be thankful for. Lord, for our families that are represented in this room, for our church family, for a nation where we can gather together freely to proclaim your name and the gospel, for your word that speaks to us. And Lord, today, most of all, we are thankful for that sacrifice that you took on the cross and for the resurrection and victory that it proclaims. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would lay all other things aside for these next few minutes and, Lord, that we would desire to receive you, to follow you, to proclaim you. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would, please be seated. We have been in Romans for a while now, and we have seen Paul declare our need for salvation, that we all have looked at God at some point in our lives and said, I don't need you, I can do it better than you. And in so doing, we have committed treason before God. We have sinned, the Bible says. And the reality of that sin, of that treason, is that now we are all deserving of consequence, meaning that we all have faced a glorious, holy God as guilty individuals deserving of hell. And yet, what the rest of Romans reveals to us is that Jesus has done something remarkable in that he has voluntarily come and lived a perfect life and then laid that life down that he may pay that price for us, that he may be the consequence for us, that he may now take his righteousness, his perfection, and place it upon us so that when now when we stand before God, we are no longer enemies of God deserving of that consequence, but rather we are children of God, 
deserving of his blessing. And so we come to this place to see in chapter 10, how do we receive such a salvation? How do we receive the power of this resurrection that we celebrate today? And Paul goes into a little bit of detail here in chapter 10 to show us some ways that we do not receive salvation and ways that we do receive this salvation that he offers so generously. Let us begin where Paul begins then with how salvation is not received. It's important that you hear that word not. As a child, I was really guilty of hearing my mom well, except for that word not. I would hear the whole sentence, but then I would ignore that, that one word, and then I would proceed to do that which she had told me not to do. And then she would say, didn't you hear me? And I would say, why, yes, I heard you perfectly well, mom. And she would say, apparently not. And I didn't hear that part either. But Paul says there is a way not to receive salvation. And he gives us at least three ways. We see the first of those in verse 2. It says, For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. To put it another way, Paul's saying salvation is not received by religious zeal with no relationship. We see this, we want it to be religious zeal. We want to, to think that if we just do those things that can check off of a, a list that we have created, that that will somehow earn us the favor of God. But Paul says that is not true. Now, religious zeal on its own is not bad. We hope that we grow in religious zeal as we have a relationship with him. But again, it's all about the relationship. Many of us, all of us probably know someone that is religiously, religiously zealous. They're passionate. I know Christians that, man, every time the door is open, they're here and, and they would check off a list of, well, I've read my Bible today. I've prayed today. I've done this today. But when you begin to talk with them, there is no relationship. There is no desire to actually hear from God and to follow him and to walk in his footsteps. I know I have friends that are Muslim, that they are religiously zealous, maybe even more so than many of my Christian friends, that they pray more than they do. They read the Quran more than they do. They, uh, they are more conservative than they are. But it, that religious zealousness does not receive them salvation because they do not know the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not... Religious zeal without knowing him falls short. Many of you have heard me say this before, but when you travel to Madagascar, whether you are in the city or in the jungle, it is not a shock to them to hear that there is one God who created all things. They already believe that. What shocks them is when you tell them he loves you and he wants to know you and he wants to speak to you. And he wants to give a purpose to your life. That blows their minds. And maybe here this morning, it blows your mind as well. To know that there is a God who desires not your religious activities, but he desires a relationship with you. 
Paul says salvation is not received by religious zeal with no relationship. It is also not received by personal morality with no submission to God. He says in verse 3, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to, the God, to God's righteousness. So, not having a relationship with God, not understanding fully what He desires, they, we all tend to begin to develop a personal morality. None of us looks at ourselves and thinks that we are horrible people, or none of us want to do that. Rather, we begin to develop our, for ourselves a definition of what a good person is. And we begin to draw lines in the arbitration of the arbitrary sand and say, I will not go beyond this line. And then it's no surprise when we stay in the line. But we always draw that line short of those things that we don't want to think about or that we don't want to give up every time. I am a good person. Now I tend to speed from time to time. But that's not so bad, right? Well, according to the word of God, I am to follow the authority that's been placed over me. For you, it may be something else. But we all draw those lines and we all have what we, what one of the books Jerry Bridges wrote out in the library, it's called Respectable. We all have those respectable sins, right? That we think, well, at least I don't do that. And we love to look across the line in the sand and look at the others that do those things that we have said are worse and say, but look at them. But we have no desire to inspect our own hearts and to hold our lives up to this book and ask the holy, perfect God, what do you desire? And there's a reason for that. Because when we do, what we find is that salvation is not based on personal morality. It is based upon perfection. And we can't reach it. It's kind of like when you go to the amusement park and you want to ride that ride, but it says you must be this tall in order to get on, we don't get the choice of moving that up or down. You can't reach up and pull that down so it fits your height. That is the standard that must be in place. So too, when we come to heaven, the standard is not where we would set it. It is the perfection of a holy God. And so we find that personal morality with no submission to God gets us nowhere. Rather, we must be dependent upon him. We said earlier that God has done this incredible thing, that he has died for us and risen from the grave, that he may take his perfection and place it on our account, that when God looks at us, he does not see our shortcomings, but rather he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. And then he says, come in, <laughs> come in. Because of what Christ has done, not because of what we have done. So salvation is not received by religious zeal without relationship, nor is it received by personal morality with no submission to the word of God and to God himself, nor is it received by superhuman effort with no faith. Notice what he says here in verse 5. 
For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteous based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul says that Moses does indeed give us a law and that if we follow that law, that we will have life. However, what we discover is that to follow the law would require superhuman ability. That the law, while it transforms us and points us to Christ, it also stands as a reminder that we cannot keep it in totality. That we will always fail in some aspect of it. Paul goes on here to say, that's in light of this, in thinking about this superhuman effort is impossible. The idea of who will descend or who will ascend to heaven or who will descend into the abyss. What he means by that is, who of you, who of you will go into heaven to grab Jesus by the hand to pull him down to earth and say, save us? And the answer, of course, is none of us. In kind, who which of you descended into the grave to grab Jesus by the hand and say, rise again. And the answer again is, none of us. This is not, our, our story of salvation is not the story of Hercules who goes on the trials and the tests that he may prove himself worthy. That is fiction. Rather, our story is of the God who came to us who stepped out of glory, who did for us what we could not do, that he may offer salvation freely to those who place their faith and trust in him. To understand in humility that we cannot accomplish salvation, that we need him. So if we cannot receive salvation by religious zeal, if we cannot receive it by personal morality, if we cannot receive it by super, superhuman effort, then how, Paul, can we receive salvation? How can we receive it? Praise the Lord, he tells us. Salvation is received by this. If you confess, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not hard. We make it hard. We make receiving Christ complicated. It's really not. To receive the gift of salvation, to know the power of the resurrection that we celebrate today, we must confess Jesus as Lord. Pure and simple. What does that mean? I have little doubt that if I were to call up the children that have been with me for the last six and a half years and ask them, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord, that the vast majority of them are going to respond with one voice, he is boss or he is king. 
When we say, when we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, what we mean is that he is the authority in our lives. That he is the one from here on out who calls the shots. No longer do we have the right to say, I know better. Now we look to him and say, lead the way. That means that we don't get to pick and choose his commands it means that we can't go through this and ignore what we don't like and embrace what seems comfortable. It means we take the totality of it. It means that there are times that Christ will say go one way when culture says go the other. It means that sometimes the desires of our heart, which by the way got us in trouble in the first place, are exactly the opposite of what we should be doing. That we should be following, that we come to him and say, what would you have me do? So it's a confession of Jesus as Lord, and it is a belief in the power of Jesus' resurrection. Let me read verse 9 again. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. In other words, you are taken from guilty to innocent. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So we confess him as Lord. We agree to follow him with our lives. And we believe in the resurrection. Why is that so important? The belief in the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, all of the rest of it falls apart. If he didn't rise again, then he's just another guy that died. If he doesn't rise again, then we have no reason to hope in heaven or a future resurrection. Paul understood this. You look through the rest of the letters that Paul writes, and you will see time and again him go back to the resurrection and urge people, you must believe this. He tells the Corinthians, if we don't believe in this, then we are fools. If we don't understand the resurrection, then we have put all our eggs in exactly the wrong basket. So convinced of he, is he of the resurrection and its power and its meaning that he tells others, go and find those that have seen it themselves. He tells us that there were 500 people, over 500 people that Jesus Christ revealed himself to after his death. Paul's urging is go and find them. Some of them at this point had fallen asleep. But go and find the eyewitnesses. Don't just believe my testimony. Go find others. That is Paul's confidence in the resurrection. So we confess him as Lord. We believe that he did what he said he would do. That he paid the penalty for our sins and that he rose on the third day. Salvation is received by confession, by belief, and it is accepted as hope and assurance for all. Going to verse 11. For scripture, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter the household that you grew up in. It doesn't matter what blood flows through your brains, brain or your, your vessels, your body. I'll get there eventually. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your economic status is. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your politics. It doesn't matter the skeletons that are in your closet that you pray every day that no one would find out about. It doesn't matter. Christ calls all. He died for all. And he offers this gift of salvation to any who would call on his name. Any who would confess him as Lord and believe in the resurrection, he desires to save and he will do it. That's his desire. That's our hope and our assurance that if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and we believe with our whole hearts and follow him as Lord, that we too will join him one day in that resurrection that we too will be joined with the saints that have gone before and the saints that will come after with the Lord in the air on that day and we will remain so for the rest of eternity. That we will experience a place with no more sorrow and no more grief, with no more goodbyes, with no more pain and no more suffering. That we will come into this new heaven and new earth with bodies that have been made whole forever. It is what we hold on to. It is what we rejoice over. Paul ends chapter 10 with these words. He says in verse 21, But he says of Israel, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Maybe you're here this morning and you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you, who is the authority in your life, you would say, that would be me. If I were to ask you, who gives you purpose, you would say, that would be me. If I were to ask you, what would be your answer before God on why you should be allowed into heaven and into his presence? Your answer would be, I don't know. Then this morning, the risen Savior Jesus Christ stands before you patiently with hands open with a gift. Come and know him. Receive salvation this morning. Confess him as Lord and believe in the resurrection and know him. Know peace like you've never known it before. No purpose like you've never known it before. No hope and assurance like you've never known it before.
know life like you've never known it before. That is my prayer for you. Believer, if you, have, or if you are here and you would say, I have grabbed hold of those things. I believe in those things. He is my Lord and my Savior. And let me share you with you one thing very quickly. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Brothers and sisters, you are here. You are here on this side of glory and he has allowed you to remain and desires that you to remain so that you may go preach the good news. You have been given this great glorious message that you may share it. We have said this uh, a lot, but your testimony, your story of the gospel is personal, but it is not to be private. And if you declare him to be your Lord, then hear your marching orders. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Brother, sister, will you go and share this Easter message with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, your community, with the world? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're going to have a time of response this morning to sing hallelujah, what a savior to sing of what he has done. My prayer this morning is this. If you are here and you have never trusted him, this morning, if, if it feels like the Lord has been speaking directly to you to say, you have tried to receive salvation, you have tried to earn heaven in all these other ways, but this morning for the first time you realize that your, your only hope is through him, then this morning that you would pray, that you would pray, Lord Jesus, I will follow you the rest of my days. I believe in you. I believe in the cross and the resurrection. Save me. I promise you he will do that. Go find somebody. The first thing you need to do is go find somebody and tell somebody what you have done and what Christ has done for you. We will be overjoyed. Maybe you need to come forward this morning and tell me, grab me after the service, go find a friend, but you respond. Believer, maybe this morning you need to make a commitment. I've been told to go, and I'm going to do it. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this wonderful Easter morning celebrating the resurrection and celebrating what it means for us that we too can look forward to our own resurrection, to that moment when we are reunited with loved ones and we are united most of all with you and we will be able to stand in your presence and to embrace you and to know you perfectly, to stand in a, in a world no longer tainted by sin but perfect in all ways, to know life and to know life abundantly. Father, I pray that we would 
stand to our feet in a moment and we would sing the truth of those things and to marvel at the Savior that we have. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself this morning that in our excitement that we would go out from this place and the message of Easter would never leave our lips. Father, I pray for the one here that it feels right now that there is a weight upon them. That they know I have never done that. That I don't know salvation. That I don't know him in a personal relationship. Father, that, that you would lead them to come to you. To receive that gift of salvation. To know the hope and the joy and the peace that we have sang of, that we have spoken of today. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen.